This episode of the Case Podcast is sponsored by O'Reilly Software Architecture Conferences, three of which will take place again in 2020. The first one in New York, the second one in Santa Clara, California, and the third one again in Berlin in November. Um, it's one of my favorite conferences, and I'm really looking forward to meeting some of you there. You can find out more at O'ReillySACon.com EU, and you'll also get 20% off your purchase price by using the code CASE, that's C-A-S-E. Welcome, listeners, to a new episode of the Case Podcast, another conversation about software engineering. This is Stefan Tilkov, and my guest today is Philine Hermans. Hi, Philine. Hi, Stefan. Welcome to the show. Why don't you just start us off by talking a bit about yourself and introducing yourself to our listeners? My name is Philine Hermans. I'm associate professor at Leiden University in the Netherlands, where I head the Pearl Research Group, the Programming Education Research Lab. Awesome. So that is going to be our topic today. And maybe we should clarify for um, our listeners first, whether we're talking about training before the job or training and education on the job. So what is it that we should be talking about in your opinion first? So my research expertise is mainly in how to teach children, high school level children and university age children, students, how to program. So I don't really know that much about learning on the job. However, I do know that within lots of companies, learning and teaching is going on. Senior developers that mentor junior developers or people that teach themselves by looking at Google or reading API documentation. So there's definitely value also, I think, in the learnings from resource into teaching and learning. However, my expertise is mainly classroom teaching. Okay, so we'll start with that and maybe we'll loop back to the on-the-job thing at the end of the episode. Um, so maybe... Just for a, an older person like me, because it's been literally quite a few decades since I've last had some sort of university education, um, what has changed in the past years? So to be honest, I don't think that much has changed. I know not a lot has changed since I was an undergrad, and that's like 20 years ago. And of course, that isn't necessarily a problem. So often I hear people say, oh, we should disrupt education because people are teaching the same way in 20 years. I don't think necessarily because nothing has changed that is an issue. But if your question is, has a lot changed? I don't think a lot has changed. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, is a tip what, is a typical, um, what is a typical programming language education uh, look like? So I think, think there's um, a, really a focus on algorithms and algorithmic thinking. So a typical course, how I received it, probably how you received it, and I think how many university students still receive the course today is, well, here's some syntax elements. This is Java, for example, or Python. Here's a variable, here's a loop, and this week's assignment is to reverse a linked list, for example. That would be a typical thing to do, where there's not a lot of explanation about how you go about such a problem. What are the strategies that you can use? How do you use mind map or diagram, how will you approach that program problem? So there's not a lot of strategies and also there's not a lot of focus on practicing syntax. So it's basically just 
hey, this is a loop in Python. Here's a semicolon and there's there go some spaces here. This is what you do. And, and now you know it because I've explained it to you. That's more or less the basics, how I see it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that sounds pretty straightforward. And as you said, exactly the same thing. What is there to research? Ha, that's a great question. I could go <laughs> on for that for a long time. Oh, please do. <laughs> so I think if you compare this form of teaching to other things people learn in life, and an example I really like to use is if you're training for a marathon, which I happen to be doing at this time. So the the worst thing you can do if you practice for a marathon is do, do a marathon every day, right? That will totally demotivate you or probably will destroy your body. So what do you do if you're training for a marathon? You do different things. You do weightlifting. Maybe you are also taking care of your food intake. And then you do slow, long distance runs and short, very speedy runs. So there's all these other things that you do. But still, in the end, you can run a marathon, probably without you even having done one. Maybe the most you've done is like 30K. That makes total sense. And the same makes sense if you're learning to play the violin. You don't say, hey, here's Bach. Play this. You do lots of uh, tone ladders, like do 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 And you do deliberate practice with your fingers. That's the things you do. And by practicing those, ultimately, you can make a bigger song. However, in programming, we very much think, well, if children need to be able to reverse a linked list, the best thing we can do is tell them to reverse a linked list and then they practice it once and then they know how to do it. If you compare these two things to each other, you see how little deliberate practice there is in programming education. Why don't we say, like we say with the violin, you play the note A 100 times, maybe a thousand times. Why are we satisfied in programming with, oh, here's a, here's a loop. Now you get it. Why don't we have children or students write a loop 100 times without it being necessarily a part of an exercise where you have to print the Fibonacci numbers or the prime numbers or do the linked list example. We don't do enough deliberate practice, whereas we know from all sorts of other fields that deliberate practice really, really works. So that's, I think, the interesting thing to think about in programming education. Firstly, I wanted to understand why is the situation? Why do people teach like this? And then can we change that? And how should we change it? And, and what are the things that deliberate practice should consist of for programming? Mm -hmm. So what are, what are some of the, what are some of the skills that a programmer needs to have in your opinion that, because those skills are obviously what need to be practiced towards, right? Yeah, that's a very, very good question. And that question can be answered at a lot of different levels. So first, I think one of the skills that programmers need is to absolutely memorize the syntax of their programming language by heart. And I know this is not typical, typically a popular position because people be like, yeah, but you can just Google that. But the short-term memory of people is very, very, very limited. Maybe you know this research by Miller. It's from the 50s of the previous century. And he said that Human memory is limited to between five and nine things. So you can only have between five and nine things in your head at the same time. And actually newer research suggests that it might be between two and six things in your brain. So our memory is very, very limited. So if you're a learner, if you're a novice programmer and your brain is still filled with, oh, for I in range, uh, was it a colon or was it a semicolon or, or was it a bracket? then there's no room to think about 
strategies like using recursion or using a tree. So I think rote memorization of syntax is like the basic skill you need. And the high schoolers I teach, for example, I really tell them, if I wake you up in the middle of the night, I shake you awake and I'm like, good morning, what is a for loop in Python? You should totally be able to say for I in range, open bracket, for closing bracket, colon. You need to memorize that. So that, that's the basic level. And I think at the next level, once you've mastered the syntax, you need to have a number of strategies. And lots of professional programmers know these strategies, but that's not because we've practiced them and we have names for them and we really use them a lot. It's just because we've taught ourselves or we've seen other people do it. So for example, strategies are divide and conquer is a typical strategy that actually is talked about a little bit, but that's still very abstract. Also strategies like in a piece of source code you have in front of you, draw the execution tray. So if you have a for loop, you take your pen and you put an arrow back to the beginning of the loop. This is typically we do something with novices once they have acquired the basic syntax level to help them understand how is the program executed. So that's the, the next level is understanding how the program is executed. And then you get these bigger level strategies of learning how a data structure works, learning how a database works. And I think actually at that level, programming education is doing quite well. So once you've broken through, let's say the syntax barrier, after that, the way we teach to teach algorithms, I think that's that's what we what we know about quite well. And this, the fact that we don't have that much syntax practice and tracing practice, so tracing is executing code in your brain, that might be one of the contributing factors that programming has ridiculously high amount of dropout. I actually checked the Dutch Bureau of Statistics numbers yesterday and computer science has a higher attrition rate so more people drop out than programs that are typically seen as very hard like physics. So, so why is that? Probably because some of the students just never reach the level where that algorithmic explanation makes sense to them because they're still struggling with how does the syntax work? How will the compiler interpret this problem? Mm -hmm. So is your theory then that um, that we're that we're actually uh, hurting our industry by not doing a great job there and losing a lot of people who might have become awesome programmers if we just spent more time with them? Yes. Okay, and, very interesting. And, and especially, I think, the, the children or students that we're losing are, the, let's say, the non-traditional computer science students. Because if you come into a programming class and you only see a loop once and then you immediately have to apply it, if it happens to be the case that you've done some programming, I don't know, in high school or at, at home with your parents or with friends, it's way more likely that you can actually follow the course, that, you, that you're able to do it because you already have some prior knowledge. And we know about learning is if, if you already have some prior knowledge, it's easy to connect new knowledge to knowledge that you already have. Mm -hmm. So traditional people that learn programming might be boys. We just did a survey actually among 100 code clubs, so out of school programs for children. And we found that an overwhelming majority of the code clubs have a majority of boy particip of male participants. Mm -hmm. So the traditional people that come in with some knowledge about programming might be boys. And the same, of course, is true for children from lower so socioeconomic families. They might have less access to computers. They might ha have less time to play with computers. 
So I definitely think it's hurting the number of people we get in to programming. And also it is another contributing factor why many programmers are overwhelmingly middle-class white male, because those are typically the students that might have some education before university. And then it's easier if the education isn't very, very crisp and clear and isn't very tailored towards a total novice learner. That's a fascinating thought because I mean, I'm, I'm sort of aware of a lot of privileges, but I never really thought that uh, knowing the syntax earlier than some of my peers might have been an Uh, a strong factor, right? Everybody likes to think of themselves that, well, this is just some innate ability that I have. I'm just, you know, I'm just naturally smarter at grasping how a data structure works <laughs> than others. Whereas the reason might be that I just wasted more time writing a stupid uh, uh, print hello, go to 10, uh, 10 print hello, go to 10 uh, pr basic programs when I was 10 years old, which is a, that's a fascinating thought. Yeah, it's, it's very okay. likely that that helped you a little bit. Makes sense. So, Do you think there is, um, it's, oh, how can I phrase this? Do you think that it's just a matter of spending enough time that everybody can learn the more advanced concepts? Or is there a natural inclination to either get it or not get it, given that, you've, that you spend enough time? Yeah, so, so those might not be necessarily excluding, mutually exclusive things. So it could mm -hmm. be the case that everyone can learn it. And still, some people might have naturally a little bit better ability to learn and compare this to learning a language, a natural language. Mm -hmm. We all want all children to learn how to read and write. That's just, you need that as like an entry pass to society. You need to be able to read and write. We don't accept that some people cannot do it. Of course, there are some people, um, if you really have mental disabilities, but otherwise we say every child, even if they later go on to be a car mechanic or something that doesn't necessarily require that much reading or writing. Everyone to be able to participate in society needs to be able to read one language. But still, some children go to kindergarten and they can already read. And some children take until maybe they're 10 or 11 to really reach the level of proficiency. So I do think everyone can learn a natural language. And in the same sense, everyone can learn the basics of a computer programming language, but still there will be lots of differences in how quickly people pick it up due to, for example, innate ability, but also, of course, as we talked about before, because of prior exposure, because that will make learning a lot easier. Mm -hmm. What about some of the things that I would consider sort of litmus tests for, for programming ability? Let's like say recursion, for example, is that a fundamentally hard concept to teach or is it just the order in which it is taught? What's the, why do we have this feeling? I, I love this tweet that was going viral like a few days ago. <laughs> I and remember Ray it, yeah. Butch was one of the perpetrators of this tweet. Like if they take you, if you get a PhD in computer science, they take you into a room and then they will tell you that recursion is not really that important. It's just a way to make programming education hard. And yeah. I think I should just print that tweet out and put it on my door because I think it's, I think it's very true. I mean, I've never been a professional programmer, so correct me if I'm wrong. But I do think for many websites and current applications and typical software that people would build, you don't really, really need recursion that bad if you're not building a, a, a parser or a compiler. It is, I think, one of the things that gets, in terms of how often you use it, 
it gets ridiculous amounts of exposure in, in a computer science undergrad degree. I think, mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think? Is this, a, you're a professional programmer. Do you think this is a valid assessment? Well, I'm, I don't know. I th- I, well, I've used recursion in actual real world production code. Um, a number of times and depending on the programming language a lot of times because different programming languages have different concepts of doing that right if you're programming in a functional language then you're much more likely to use recursion than if you're doing that in an imperative one but i do admit that part of it might be that um it's it may be some sort of uh, arrogance but it's one of those things that uh, that signal that you understood things at a certain level right so that's i think why it's often used in stupid programming uh interview questions and you know things like that so i think it's it's both that people like to um it's one of the things where you where you're very happy if you got it and where you're sort of proud of yourself that you've understood it and maybe it's being used like that because you want to uh, identify yeah, others who just like you like this particular i think it is a very elegant concept and it is a useful thing and it's interesting or i think it's a positive thing to understand how recursion can be replaced by iteration or the other way around right so that's a that it's not something that you that you probably do every day unless you're writing a programming language interpreter or uh, are building low-level data structures or i don't know are into functional programming um, which many people are not. I, I completely, completely can see that. Hmm. Yeah, it's of course interesting because there's also this feedback loop, of course, because we teach people recursion and we emphasize how important it is. Therefore, people know it and therefore people will use it and they will also use it in a way that you said, a little bit like virtue signaling, like, look at me being smart. I'm using recursion. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the emphasis we put on it, the value we put on it in education will also pour over into uh, into how people mm-hmm. use concepts. But I don't know if it's a litmus test. I will want to run the study where where we test students early in their career how well they understand recursion. And then we bring them back into the lab 20 years later and we see what type of software they've created and how well they're doing. That would be very interesting. Yeah. other things that get less emphasis in computer science programs, for example, uh, debugging skills, how to properly use a debugger, how to choose great variable names, how to write documentation. Those are things that are underappreciated, I think, in undergrad programs that could also be great predictors of programming success. How well Mm -hmm. you are able to understand the role of a certain variable and how well you're then able to pick an unambiguous name for an, an, a class or a method. I would say that's maybe as good as a predictor. I, I would want to run the study where we compare that type of skills. There's like an abstraction skill also to to using recursion and then see who's the, the best mm-hmm. programmer. I don't know. That reminds me of the other tweet that made the rounds, which said that... Um, in in quotes, of course you need a PhD to be a data scientist, unquote. He said as he manually renamed 70 CSV files. I like, <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot as well. Yeah. So yeah, I, I completely agree that there's a ton of skills that are um, very, very important that are on a different level. And the, the examples that you gave are, I think, extremely important in real life programming. I still, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm prepared to let go of the idea that um, it's quite unlikely that you're a that you're a really good programmer unless you are able to understand the concept of recursion 
I think you should be, yeah. Maybe you shouldn't be, yeah. I think I, but you're right. This is just, you know, this may be complete, completely conscious or unconscious bias on my side because I believe I understand the concept. And, and, and I totally the, feel so, you. For me also, it would feel really weird, for example, to give students a, a computer science degree without recursion. If I think about that, I'm like, no, <laughs> that cannot be right. But then if I consciously think about it, okay, what are all the things that students could build without knowing that concept? And there are really many, many, many things that have use and value in the world, like all sorts of web apps and databases where you don't really need recursion. And and I can and then if I compare that You're again right. to debugging skills and identifier naming skills i'm like okay but what program can you build if you're very sloppy with variable names everything you touch will turn to lead and not uh -huh. gold so <laughs> i feel you really i feel you it will be weird however i think it gets just too much attention i'm not saying mm -hmm. that drop it but yeah i think I'll, i can i can probably agree with that yes so so you were you were you were saying uh, you were, were talking about these different levels, like the the memorized syntax kind of thing and the strategies part. Is there another level of things that you need to add on top of that, or is it the one we just talked about? Yeah, so I think it would be. I, I was actually making notes on my notepad, like, okay, what levels was I talking about? I think it would totally be first syntax and then tracing, so being able to predict how a program will execute, and then the next level would be strategies, and maybe mm -hmm. a, a higher level even would be. Uh, I don't know, tactics, where you really think, okay, what type of data, sort of architecture level, what type of data structures do we need? What type of classes do we need? How does this system interact with the world? That's even maybe a higher level than just how am I going to approach this problem? So that software architecture design would be the, the highest level. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what are some of the uh, exercises that you would do compared, comparable to, you know, running at full speed and weightlifting and whatever it is. What are some of the things that you can do to uh, to uh, flex your muscles in these different levels? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and actually, I think we should turn our attention not to learning from running or learning from music. But we're, what we're actually trying to do here in Leiden is learn from how people learn their first natural language. And one of the things that people do when they learn their first natural language you know this if you if you know or have a child that's like five or six years old they read letters and then words and then sentences aloud it's a very natural thing to do if you're a novice reader you cannot read without making a sound and if you five you're learning to read you have the word cats you do not read cats at once it's c-a-t or if you're a kid it will be cats 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 mm -hmm. and you do that very for a very very long time only if you're in like grade six or grade seven you can comfortably read natural language in silence so one of the things we've been doing with kids and it has been a very exciting experience is to have them read python code aloud as a means of syntax optimization so just as the same way as we want kids to automate letters and phonemes and words we want children to automate Python code. So we just have them read source code aloud, really like 4i in range, open bracket, 4, closing bracket, colon, print, open bracket, i, closing bracket. And it's it's not just language, actually, that does this, because now people will think, well, but programming language is not like a real language. 
That's true. But also, of course, in mathematics education, reading aloud is used commonly as a way to improve memory. Think of when you were learning the tables of multiplication. How mm -hmm. often did you say one times five is five, two times five is 10? Hundreds of times before you mm -hmm. really automate it, before you can just say, oh, eight times five is 40. And even now that I'm saying eight times five is 40 in English, it definitely takes me a longer time to think of it because I've memorized those rules in Dutch. So it is not just that I'm calculating, it's I'm, I'm relying on my memory, even though, of course, I can calculate eight times five, but I don't. I'm relying on memory. And then I'm relying on my Dutch memory because that, that's where I trained it and I quickly translate it. So it makes, we would say, all the sense in the world to also have children memorize Python code like language and math so that once they need it, it doesn't fill up their entire space. And remember the working memory items that are very low. It just fills up one space because they can quickly retrieve it from their long-term memory. So mm -hmm. that, that's one of the things we're doing, and we're, we're quite excited about this idea, mainly because it makes everyone angry. And if everyone is angry, then you just know an idea is a great idea. <laughs> okay. But as you mentioned, it, it, does this create a problem um, for non-native English speakers? Yes, absolutely. We, we're not prepared for that. So the first study we ran about this vo vocalization is how it's called. Python vocalization was with Dutch kids because I live in the Netherlands and the children that I have easy access to in high schools that I work with are Dutch kids. And a very, very interesting thing, and we didn't think of this. So what we thought was we will have children read aloud and we can see how consistent they are. And probably the children that are most consistent are the best kids because they've automated the syntax best. And that, that actually turned out to be true. So that was good. That hypothesis was true. But there was another hypothesis we didn't have before. Because in the Netherlands, and I think it's same in, uh, in Germany, in German, if you have the letter I, the I in English, we don't call that letter I, we call that letter E. That's how, how we mm -hmm. say it, like E in, in, in the English word creep, the E. Mm -hmm. So we had Dutch children that read the snippet that contained the variable I like this, for I in range for print E. So they would mm -hmm. vocalize it within range, in, in close proximity to range, they would say I, because if you see range, that's an American word, so you get I, you get to the American or English reading line, but print is also a Dutch word. So what probably happens in their brains is they see print, they say it in a Dutch way, and then the, the next letter is the letter E, how we say it in Dutch, because these were 12-year-olds, and for six, seven, eight years, they've already practiced that that letter that in English is called I, we call it E. And mm -hmm. of course, if you're at that level, if you're not consistently pronouncing that letter, are you really fully aware into the smallest veins of your being that that is the same variable? If you don't pronounce it consistently, hmm. it's very likely that you don't really have automated the belief, the understanding that those are the same variables. So indeed, we found very interesting natural language effects that we didn't anticipate. So that's another benefit of reading aloud, actually. We know the benefit of reading aloud is for the students, because if you read something aloud, you pay closer attention and it's good for memory. We know that. But another value of reading aloud that this example nicely illustrates is the value for the teacher. If you ask a kid to read aloud, you can sort of look into their brains, which is pretty hard, especially with programming. You don't really know what they know. So if you ask 
a kid to read that Python loud and you see that they're still struggling with the variable name, then of course, then, then obviously they are not at a level where you want them to be. So it's also very revealing for teachers. And then of course, understand that Dutch, if you don't know Dutch, Dutch is very much like English, even though it's not the exact same thing. They're very, very close. Imagine the effect of reading aloud on learners that naturally speak Hindi or Chinese or Arabic. If your language is even further away from English and print, for example, unlike in Dutch, isn't even a word in your language, probably that you will have more benefit even from memorizing it by the sounds because the looks of those letters you don't commonly see don't really carry that much value to you. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it actually reminded me of the benefit that many people say, uh, or that I've observed, observed myself from uh, talking to somebody and have them type something, right? It's about, you know, the, the, uh, the seeing into the brain, it's very interesting to listen to somebody explain something as opposed to just seeing the result, the resulting program that they type, which is probably part of why pair programming and mob programming and all of those things um, Definitely. Give you more and, insight to those things. And at a higher level, I think, our profession programmers do understand this because you have this concept of rubber ducking. If you're really stuck, then explain your problem to your mm-hmm. rubber duck or your leprechaun or what have you in your office, and, and, and it will help. So at this level, let's say of the level of strategies, we definitely believe as a community already that vocalization is a good tool because I definitely think most people believe in either rubber ducking or brainstorming with their with goal, mm-hmm. with their office mm-hmm. mates. So we do believe it at a higher level, but we don't really believe it at syntax level because we sort of think syntax is easy and Googleable. But the idea, of course, that expressing an idea with with your voice has also comprehension benefits. That's that's not very mm-hmm. revolutionary. Okay. So how much is this influenced by um, the fact that? When you're in university, you're very likely to have to learn more than one language. Are you supposed to do the same kind of learning for each of the languages that you want to be proficient That's in? That's a great question. We don't know yet. We also don't know yet at what level vocalization has to take place and when. So clearly, if you're a novice, then it is valuable to say, let's say in Python, for I in range, open bracket, for closing bracket, colon, because you want to memorize that that's where the symbols go but probably after a while if you're a more experienced programming programmer then if you're reading code aloud you you wouldn't say for i in range maybe you just say a for loop from zero to four you could still practice reading a longer program but maybe you don't have to stress all the individual elements maybe you only stress the importance maybe you're abstracting while reading while reading aloud as well. And in the same sense, indeed, if you are already a proficient Python programmer and then you're learning C, maybe you only need to practice this syntax level for a really short time, or maybe you do not need that at all because you've already memorized, you know there is a concept of a for loop and you can easily retrieve it from your memory, even though, yes, in C it looks different from Python, but you can sort of look that up without too much overhead because you can retrieve the for statement as one thing, even though you don't know the syntax. So these are all open questions that are very interesting. We, we don't know those yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I'm, I'm going to get back to this how can we know uh, thing later, but I wanted to uh, ask more about more methods. So we've talked about vocalization as one strategy or one method. What else is there in your toolbox? So one of the things that's also very interesting, again, coming from reading education, is deliberate explanation of strategies. And this holds specifically for reading text. So if you learn to read text, and now we're not talking about your first encounter with text if you're six or seven, but think of early high school where you're really learning text comprehension. You get taught specific strategies for reading text. They will tell you things like, uh, some of the things you can do is look at the images, look at the headers, uh, try to summarize the text. So you, you read it, you get two minutes for this text. So clearly you cannot read everything. So you have to look at only the important elements, look at words that are made bold. And if I explain it like this, you'll be like, yeah, that is so basic. Do we really need to uh, explain this to kids? But then if you look at textbooks about reading comprehension, we actually do explain these things to kids. We explain to them how to read a text and we tell them, here are your strategies and also evaluate those strategies. So you looked at the pictures. What did you think the text was about? Now actually read the text. What do you think the text is about now? How helpful were the pictures? That type of instruction, I haven't really seen for programming. So how do people learn how to read source code? I don't really know. And I've seen third year undergrads, if I ask them, what does this code do? Start at the top of the program and just read from top to bottom. It makes sense because it's basically the only strategy they know from natural language. You read it top to bottom. How would they know that something else is more practical? And there's been interesting research, actually eye-tracking research, that has compared how novices versus experts read code. And of course, you know what experts do because you are an expert. We follow the control flow of the program, the execution tray. So we start at the main loop. That's what we read first. And then there's a method. And we're like, oh, where is this method defined? And we go to the method definition. And then we read the method. And maybe it calls another method. Or maybe it acts as a field of the class. And then we're, oh, we, let's go to the definition of the field. We follow the execution of the program. Who has ever told you that that is a good strategy? How have you acquired mm -hmm. that strategy? So it's sort of a survival bias. It's, and it, it's good that we know this. And it's great that we practically taught ourselves. But I think we could be, again, more efficient and also maybe more inclusive if this is an explicit thing we tell to students here's a program find the execution path and this is the order in which you read things and also things like scanning for natural language you just read the headers and you get a sense of what a what a what text is meaning if you just have two minutes well for programming it might make sense to collapse and many IDEs can do this just literally collapse all the classes or collapse all the methods and just read the signatures you can you can get something from that that's another strategy so specifically naming these strategies and telling students hey these are things you do so you get this code you have to read it this also in general is an exercise we don't really do lots of programming education is aimed at constructing programs and not at reading programs but even if you would have reading then what does the student do so we want to really make this catalog of reading code strategies and deliberately practice those strategies and then we haven't done that uh, a big study on that yet but we hypothesize 
it's almost sort of boring because you're just replicating results. You sort of know that hole because in natural language they hold. So why wouldn't it hold for programming? We think that if you explain students those strategies and if they practice, then ultimately they will be more more versatile code readers because they have this library of strategies. Mm -hmm. well, that makes absolutely makes a lot of sense. Um, I can imagine some of some. Some reading class. This is the class where we do nothing but read a program and summarize what it does. This is a fascinating idea. Yeah, there was an amazing <clears throat> study done in the 90s. I want to pitch this paper because I just um, found it out about it a few months ago. It's called The Case for Case Studies in Pascal. It is online. We can link to it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. They compared a group of high schoolers learning to program in Pascal One group just programmed like, like normal, in normal, typical programming education. And then after they created the program, they got to see an expert solution. That was group one. Group two also programmed. They got the expert solution, but also with expert explanation. Group three did not program at all. They just read expert programs with expert explanation. And that third group did as well as the second group and better than the first group. So a programming course in which there was no programming going on, only reading code and reading about strategies, let's say, about how experts had created those programs, was actually a very valid and efficient way to teach programming to high schoolers. That's like, wow, that is so contradicting the things we believe in programming that in order to become a good programmer, you need to do lots of programming. Turns out that this study, and I would love to replicate this study now because 92 is a long time ago, but I do think it's valid still that if you just explain to kids how they should do things, then it's, it's more efficient than having them figure out all this stuff about syntax and about strategies by themselves. It's just It is possible because I know people will now be up in your mentions or my mentions on Twitter. And they're like, yes, but I have taught myself programming. <laughs> so this is possible. I am not saying it's not possible. I, you have value, calm down. But it is probably more efficient to just explain this to kids. Okay. So, so but, I'll, but I'll bite uh, sort of the thing that I postponed a few minutes ago. I'm, I'm always kind of worried um, by those studies, because every time I look into one of those studies in more detail, I find them uh, not really convincing. Because what they typically do is they have super small groups of like six students here and seven students there, and no explicit assessment of what they knew before they did this particular thing. So my problem with many of those studies is that I just don't believe them. Um, what is your ex what is your experience there? Do, do you do you, am I just wrong and you know old men shouting at cloud? Uh, type of thing is this all different these days or was my perception wrong how how well researched is the actual research so so that's a very valid question and of course part of science is definitely criticizing methods and can we really believe this and as i said i want to replicate those studies because of course our confidence in those studies in any kind of study increases if lots of replication is done if lots of similar mm -hmm. studies are ran so although so however It is valid and important to critique studies, but I see there's often a correlation between how much people criticize study and how much they want the study not to be true. So sometimes studies that we don't like get more criticism than studies if, if it's something that validates everything we already believe. We're like, oh yeah, but, but they're mm -hmm. fine saying this is true. 
So I do think it's very good to be critical. I do, however, also think sometimes it's just a way of people that aren't that well-versed. They aren't scientists themselves, so they don't really know what such a study should be about. And you say, oh, but it doesn't have much participants. It was just seven or it was just 70 or it was just 700. Because in principle, any number is small. Even if you would do a study with a million programmers, that's still not all the programmers and that's still quite a small percentage of Mm -hmm the world population. So in general, if you have a randomized control trial where half of the students get a certain treatment like reading aloud or like programming by only reading programs and another group gets another treatment and you do that in a valid randomized way. So even though um, you don't know what prior knowledge there already is. You can either do a test before and then distribute the knowledge over the groups, or you can say, well, we randomly assign everyone to groups. And if your group is reasonably sized, then you can still learn something. So I don't think necessarily if studies are small that they don't have value, they can definitely still have value. But also, yes, more of these studies are good. And the more skeptical we are as a programming community in general, the more reason there is for us to run these studies, I think, for a field that is extremely critical. I mean, people bicker about, you You know this, everyone knows this, we bicker about FIM versus Emacs, oh, C is the best programming language, no Python, no spaces, tabs, everything is under debate, and that is good. It's good that we keep talking about those things. However, the fact that you learn programming by programming a lot, which again, compared to language and math and music and sports, is sort of a weird position to be in, is entirely never criticized. And skills like debugging, reading, code, they're never taught. Not in undergrad programs. Doesn't seem, as far as I'm aware, to be taught that much in coding boot camps. So let's say competitors for traditional programming education in universities, it's all focused on programming, 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 which is, as I said, it's just, why aren't people more debating there where it, where it matters? So mm-hmm. I hope people are interested in, are these studies actually valid? Does that Pascal 92 story still hold? That's good because if more people are interested then that's more ammunition for me to actually run those studies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in, in, in my defense, I, I have to say that I'm, I tend to not believe any studies no matter whether they support or don't support my personal point of view. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But, but it's still, uh, you know, it's still uh, um, um, true that it would, it could, it could be, it could be, uh, those studies could be dismissed for all the wrong reasons. And I'm certainly not free of that. So the more, yeah, and no, I completely no. agree with the point that if there are more studies replicating the same results, then of course that increases the confidence in, yeah. in, and in you those will, results. And you will believe this because it's yet another study, but there's actually some <laughs> evidence that people more quickly reject a study if it doesn't fit their opinion. There are studies done on gender bias. So if you believe gender bias is true and you read a study about gender bias, you'll be like, oh, this is true. Whereas if before you have said, no, I don't believe that, and it presents you the same evidence, you say, well, that's not evidence because reasons. So you'll not believe me because it's yet another study, but studies show that it is indeed true that if you believe something, you're less likely to reject evidence showing that that is true. So let me qualify Let me qualify that. I, I actually do believe you because I do believe those kinds of studies. I have a particular problem, problem with studies regarding programmer productivity. 
Yeah. Because yeah. I find that so incredibly hard to measure because it's sort of impossible to um, neutralize the effect of the participant's experience. Yeah, that's That's, 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 very that's the one thing that troubles me a lot. I, you know, I have complete confidence in studies that are done with a number of people regarding you know, general things like confirmation bias or any of the fallacies that people have and lots of there and they can be replicated i completely agree with that it's really just programmer productivity that where it yeah, always productivity is, is very very hard to measure i i agree with that it's very hard also to have a randomized control trial in which exactly. some programmers do one thing and other programmers do another thing because the the realistic situation where you would work on a project for months that's almost impossible to replicate so i do agree with you that productivity and how do you measure it like number of feature points or mm -hmm. uh, lines of code or whatever. So yeah, productivity is, is specifically hard to measure. But of course, mm -hmm. measuring if, if students have acquired a certain concept, something like doing an exam at the end, I would say mm -hmm. is less hard to measure. It's pretty easy to measure if someone understands what a variable is. And this is something mm -hmm. you do in practice as well. So I think those studies are slightly less up to discussion and things about productivity. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Okay, um, let's leave that and maybe talk a bit about algorithms and data structures. Um, because clearly that's at the next level beyond um, beyond the mere syntax kind of thing. I believe you call them strategies, right? Yeah. So uh, do you have some additional ways of, of teaching those? No, I think as I said earlier in the episode as well, I think once we're at that level, the way we teach is is pretty good. You get you do get lots of ex, uh, experience, lots of practice with a red black tree or a linked list. So I think because the education is sort of designed for people that already know programming, even though it starts at a lower level, I think the higher the level is, let's say the more the students look like the professors, the better the teaching becomes. <laughs> so I, I think for me, I'm less interested in that level because I think they're they were doing quite well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one question I have is, what's your opinion on how much do people need to understand those things? How, how important is it for somebody to understand how, say, a hash map works internally or a red black tree or whatever data structure or how to do a particular algorithm? That's a great question. I think this question hits right in the heart of one of the struggles that computer science programs have all around the world. Because we are very, let's say, schizophrenic about who are we educating. I think many undergrad programs are secretly programs that prepare for a career as a computer scientist. So a scientist as in someone that does a PhD and that later goes on to work as a postdoc or a professor. So I do think if you are the person that is designing algorithms, if you're creating new algorithms for machine learning or AI or what have you, then it's very important to be able to create new data structures to deeply understand how those things work. However, many programs, even though they want to be scientific, are actually creating programmers, people that stop their education after the bachelor's degree or more common in the EU after their master's degree, they go into industry. And then if you go into industry and you become a programmer, then maybe it's really important that you know how to use data structures. It's definitely, you definitely need to know how to use a tree, how to use it. Mm -hmm. 
But do you really know how to des- need to know how to design new data structures? Do you really deeply know how to implement those? Do you, do you need to know how they run on a machine? Maybe, but maybe not. So I think it's very hard that we have to cater to, uh, we, I'm a professor myself, we have to cater to these two entirely different categories of people where people that go on to be a programmer, they absolutely need to know how GitHub works and how an IDE works and how to do code reviews and how to do Scrum. And those are the things we get lots of criticism from companies where our graduates uh, graduates go to work like why didn't you teach them good and why didn't you teach hmm. them stand-up meetings well because initially we were very much created as an education to educate new scientists and that's still in our veins and you can just see that from the program so i personally it's a bit we're going back to the recursion discussion which is maybe interesting hmm. It's very much, yes, it is important, but other things are also important. Uh, I guess also people might be upset with this. I'm sure this can be on hacker news, like, oh, computer science professor says data structure doesn't matter. (laughs) I'm not saying they don't matter, but I am saying that I think they get enough attention and that deep understanding of how exactly a hash hash table maps to memory on the computer not something you use that often and you can really i think have a nice career in creating programs if you just know in what python library you can get the hash table or the red mm-hmm. tree and how to work with it and you don't necessarily need to know what the balancing l how does the red black tree stay balanced i don't know but i know it guarantees me quick search so that's fine i think mm-hmm. so so one counter argument might be that um this kind of knowledge is sort of um way more uh it's it's more long-term knowledge as opposed to let's say the use of git right so i do i completely do get your point and i do have the same sort of ambivalent opinion regarding the litmus test effect of the whole thing right so um i understand i also understand what you're saying regarding the difference between maybe computer scientists and software engineers or whatever we might we might call them if there's such a difference and if we should be maybe different in education as well. The only thing is that maybe some of those things are skills that you'll be able to apply uh, even if details in the underlying technology or the products or tools change. Would you agree with that? Yeah, so I definitely think that this is one of the things that if you teach them, you teach them for the long term. You don't teach how red black trees work exactly in Python 3.7, you teach them the abstract concept so that you can use it and recognize in different places. So I definitely think that is true, but that also goes for, let's say the transferable skills that I would advocate need more attention, like Mm -hmm. uh, variable names. That's also a skill that stays relevant with all new technologies and with all new programming languages that could exist. So I definitely believe in teaching abstract concepts in addition to practical skills. And I think I'm just saying there should be a balance. And some Mm -hmm. of the things get too little emphasis while they're also long-term skills like organizing your code really well or giving feedback to a colleague in a professional, proper way. Mm -hmm. Completely agreed. Okay. So you mentioned... A few minutes ago that um, we sort of expect people to be able to read and write to be a, to be able to use or to be a member of this society um, at least you know if they want to uh, you know take part in everything that's that's an essential skill uh, 
Is that true for programming as well? Yeah, I think so. So it is not necessarily true that you need to be able to create a program. But I do think you need to be able to understand how hard it is to create a program for something, which is very, very like knowing how to program. Just give an example from the Dutch political situation. We have Airbnb in Amsterdam, and that's a problem for the city because it creates tourism hubs in places where the city government did not envision tourism because it was residential areas that are now touring, turning into tourism areas. And that's a problem because now we get too much tourism and people are unhappy in their neighborhoods. That is a political problem, but it's also a software problem because suppose Amsterdam wants to do something. The city council says, we are sick of Airbnb. We don't want that. We will build our own app. We will build Amsterdam BNB so that people can still rent out their houses, but we have some control. How hard is that? Is this 100 euros? Is this one, one million euros? Is it technically impossible to build such an app? What are the ethical implications of this? In order to be able to participate in such a discussion, which I would like all citizens of my country to be able to do, you need to have some knowledge about how hard is it to create something. And that's just one example. If you want to participate in society, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you, you write an angry letter to the government. You say, hello, government, I am angry because there are too many people parking in my street. What you could do now, if you have some programming skills, is you could actually download open data from the government and say, no, there are not too many cars in my street. Only the past three months, there were 427 cars in my street. Well, there are only 100 permits. So how can this possible be possible? People without a Permits must be parking here. So knowing some programming also enables you to participate in such discussions that are very similar to discussions that you could solve with just text or language previously. So for those type of reasons, I think it's very important that everyone knows a little bit about programming so that they can participate in these discussions and it's not just airbnb you know it's it's uber it's uber eats and Deliveroo. there's so many parts of society where software is they say software is eating the world that if we don't give everyone access to that type of discussion and a type of power who again will have this who already has this power and continue to wield this power that will be Silicon Valley, mainly middle-aged, uh, middle-class, middle-aged white men that create these apps, create these apps dis disrupting for b better or worse societies all over the world. And I think everyone, especially people that aren't that traditional group of solving their problems, everyone needs access to that. So that technology is more, maybe more beneficial or at least less disruptive in places where we don't want it to be disruptive. So it's not just, I like programming, so everyone should like programming. It's also that. And also, I like running, so everyone should like running marathons. It is partly that, of course, but it's also being able for everyone to participate in these enormously impactful discussions. That's why I think programming is, is very important for everyone to know. Mm -hmm. Okay. So conversely, do you also think that there should be, uh, you know, mandatory politics and ethics training for programmers? Yes. <laughs> I thought so. And I agree. <laughs> okay. It's like, it's like 
medicine. We need this Hippocratic, uh, how do you say the Hippocratic? Oath. Oath, oath mm-hmm. for, for programming. Yeah, you should at least be aware of what the effects of what you're creating could be on society. I think very much programming is focused on, oh, I can build this and it'll be really cool. Let's make a robot that can do a backflip because it is <laughs> amazing to look at. <laughs> why do we well, want it this? Is. <laughs> well, it is. It's also very yeah, scary. It's amazing, but why do we want this? And what could be negative effects? And what else could that robot do with that very strong and powerful limbs that can totally move everywhere? Maybe other things in a backflip. Hmm. <laughs> do we also want that? Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, so um, let's move back to more simple or to simpler questions um one that occurred to me was um in your experience teaching what would be a good programming language to start yeah because that's totally an easier question than yeah (laughs) that's very you just tell me which language is the best one and then this is settled so i really like teaching python at this point so i would definitely say python is one of my favorite languages I think also it doesn't really matter. So that's two contradicting <laughs> answers. I think what really matters is that that you're you're fluent in the language and you practice a lot. The reasons that I like Python is that it is very, very versatile. It can do many things. You can create a web app with Django. You can do data analysis with Python. So it allows you to be many different things. And I think that's what I like about Python. That's also what I like about the Python community. I definitely think also that you should think if you're teaching someone a programming language, not just then they can know the programming language, but they will also be part of a community. So especially, again, thinking of female students, if I if I think of sending my students into the Python community, you know, Guido is going off to conferences wearing shirts that say Python is for girls. That is a welcoming space that I would happily send students to. There might be other programming languages or platforms that are less inclusive in that way. So I think for me, that's also an important reason to select a programming language because you do influence the type of people and the type of events that your students Mm -hmm. will go to. So I, I like Python, but also I don't, care that much okay so what are some of the characteristics that a language needs to have to be a good teaching vehicle so what i like about python is it is very gradual so it's it's a little bit like gradual typing also a concept that i very much like is you don't have to make many decisions in the beginning if you're just learning python you don't need to think about types you can just create your variables and everything works And then if you move on a little bit, you can actually use optional typing. You can think of types and there are types and you can ask Python what the type of a variable is and you can write down what types for a function is, but you don't have to do it. So it is sort of ease into it where I think there are lots of other programming languages that might be a little bit harder to learn where you need to get everything right from the beginning. So any language with a type system I love type systems. They're empirically shown to be working and they get less errors. So yes, use type systems if you're professional. They're amazing. Lots of research about that. However, if you're a beginner, it can be overwhelming. You have to think about syntax and also the types have to match. It is too much initially. So I would definitely like languages that 
where you can not think about some things initially and add them later on, I think for teaching, that is definitely the, the best. Again, think of language. Initially, if students learn to read, again, they're five or six or seven, you don't need to do interpunction. They don't even need to do capital letters. They just do everything lowercase. Because first we want to focus on handwriting. We want to focus on spelling some words and reading a bit. And then only later we say, well, now instead of doing every sentence on another line, we can mash sentences together, but then you need to have a, a period in between. Otherwise it gets confusing. So you add more and more levels. And I definitely think programming languages that can mimic that experience stepping up and creating harder and harder programs with more elements of detail that were initially left out. I think that's the best. But again, also, it doesn't matter as much as people think it matters. Okay. Um, so I'm very sure our listeners have strong opinions on that. So um, that's definitely going to make somebody... That's good. <laughs> if they do have strong opinions on this, we're actually running a survey. It's great how you coined that very smoothly. If people are interested in actually expressing their opinions on programming languages, we are running a survey at bit.ly slash pl-views, bit.ly slash pl-views, where you can express what you think is the best, the worthy, the most valid programming language. You can pick all the programming languages you want and then tell us why you think one language is better than the other language. We are still gathering results. So we very much like to hear from you what you listeners of the case podcast, what your favorite programming language is and mm -hmm. why. Very good. So we'll put make sure to put that in the show notes as well. Okay. So... I'd like to loop back to the beginning of our discussion. We started off by um, making sure people were aware that we're basically talking about education before people get a job. So maybe we can turn back to that topic again. How much of what we discussed is transferable to a training, training for people who are already active programmers or software developers? Um, and uh, how is it different? Yeah, so I think one of the most important takeaways is that if you see colleagues struggling, for example, because they're learning a new language or platform or API, help them with the basic stuff. It might very well be that you're an excellent C programmer and one of the best in your team. And now we're moving to Python and suddenly they're, they're like babies again. They don't know anything. It's because they don't. So help them really focus and practice with some syntax and, and don't say stuff like, oh, but this is easy. It's just, you, you already know C, so this, this programming language will be easy. It will not be easy because you still need to have lots of muscle memory for the syntax. It's also like, oh, but you already know Dutch. Well, then <laughs> French will be easy. Yeah, yeah, I know the letters. I know the alphabet. I know sort of some of the grammar elements, but it still be very, very hard. So in the same sense, transferring to something new always takes tremendous amounts of energy and people will it's like if, if i say something in french i will sound like a little bit dumb because everything i say will be half off in a similar way if people start a new programming language they'll probably do some some weird stuff even though they're really smart it's not because they're not smart they're still smart they just still have to get used to new things so i think give people a little bit of credit and don't, don't think it's just syntax you can easily google it or pick it up you really need some time to automate skills in any new environment that you're in. And also fo focus and practice. Reading code, I think, is still something you can get better at. If you're a proficient reader of English, you will still learn like five new words every week because you read a lot. 
I'm sure if you would read lots of code, then you would also still pick up new strategies, new data structures. So all those people doing those open source projects on Saturdays, like, oh, this is my GitHub page and I have 20 projects. I'm always slightly skeptical. I mean, I'm happy you're doing things that you think are fun. By all means, have fun. But I don't think you're necessarily learning something from just applying new things. I think if you the same things, I think if you want to learn new skills, a better way might actually be to go on GitHub and find a program that you use, that you like, and, and read the source code. This could be an exercise you could do with a group of developers in your company. Let's read the Linux kernel. Let's read the open office code. <laughs> what is going on there? What can we learn from that? I think that might be something if you want to do a team learning, group learning exercise that could have lots of value and maybe more value than just creating new things. Awesome. I totally love that idea of a reading club, a reading circle for interesting project source code. And I think we'll leave it at that. Philina, it's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. And goodbye, listeners. Until next time. <laughs>